BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marcia Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He writes for American Greatness and we do these tantalizing episodes for the podcast world. And we are part of John Solomon's Just the News organization. And so he is the flagship for our podcast. So we welcome everybody. Today, this episode, we're going to start with Biden and a little bit more on both Biden files and Biden's presidency. But first, let's take a moment for these messages. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to the Victor Davis Hampson Show. Victor, I often ask you how you are today. I want you to note that I am in a house that does not have heat, and so I'm very, very, very cold, and I am in the middle of California, and we have unusually cold temperatures here. I just want you to know that. That's because we are sitting on the Monterey Shelf, which is one of the richest natural gas deposits in the United States, and we won't tap it. So we're importing, I suppose, natural gas or propane, whatever it is, it's in short supply and it's very expensive. California, especially right yeah, now. So pretty crazy. That's well, the story, Victor, story of the we state. Were... You didn't even ask, you didn't wait till I told you that I felt well. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you asked sorry. me how I was. Yeah. You I drove this I hear morning from, you're doing well. Yeah. I drove this morning from my graduate alma mater at Stanford at four thirty in the morning. And I left behind a uh, the Stanford euphemism list where you cannot say citizen or uh, American. I left behind the Bankman Freed faculty home with Mr. Sam himself there with the paparazzi lurking around. I left the president under a uh, controversy about a supposedly improper use of an illustration in one of his co-authored articles, and they're out to dismiss him. 
And <laughs> I went from Matt Walsh is going to visit and the Stanford uh, Student Council is going to pay for demonstrators or protesters. That's kind mm-hmm. of like a rent, rent a demonstrator against him. And uh, I uh, walked across campus and got a full dose of being woke. And then I'm back in reality in the San Joaquin Valley of California where people are normal. You sound like you're just coming out of the theater of the absurd. Or waking up in a Kafka novel when I go there. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's uh, it's you know, I'm not critical of it in this sense that. I grew up with stories of my poor grandfather. He never went to college, of course, and he didn't have a lot of money. He had a little 120-acre farm, and he mortgaged it to send his three daughters to college. So when I grew up, my mother and aunt had BAs and graduate, one law, one an MA, and they thought Stanford was a pillar of opportunity. And my cousin went there, my I went there, and it's it always had that propensity for extremes because it had this strange marriage or weld or fusion between being very, very wealthy and and kind of left wing. That's a bad combination. So I was reminded of that when I was walking across campus yesterday to my apartment and I counted the number in the fraternity, uh, not fraternity, but dorm, beautiful homes that serve as dorms. And I counted in three blocks, two Lexuses, two Mercedes, and three BMWs by the Wolksters. Hmm. And that's all you need to know to paraphrase John Keats. Yeah. Or is that, show, excuse me, owed to a great me, owed to a Grecian urn. Yeah. All right. So, Victor, what is the latest? I know we've had so much on Biden and his files found in all sorts of places. Seems to me there was a new trove just recently to come out. But I was wondering what your thoughts are on the recent events. Yeah, that's interesting because they used a new word. You know, I'm a philologist, so I always try to pay attention to what they use the word item. You know what I mean? Is my Dodge truck an item? (laughs) <laughs> is the South 20 out here? Is that an item or is it one almond tree or is it 6,000 of them? The point is when they don't say they found so many classified files or papers, but they say items or those trunks, nobody knows. So they're playing word games. And, you know, I think they've exhausted the Trump was worse argument. As we talked a little bit about last time, Trump had one place, remember. And he had it for 19 months. This is now going back to Biden as a senator, mm. a senator. I know. You know, not, he hasn't been senator since 2008. And so you're getting up there to 15, 16 years. They've been floating around. And, you know, if you look at matters of time and space, the time is much more than Trump's 19 months. He had it more lago. Only a drunken sailor would say that Mar-a-Lago is less secure than Biden's garage. It's a joke. (laughs) And then, you know, we mentioned that Biden keeps commenting on the ongoing investigation. You like when Karine Jean-Pierre says we can't comment on an ongoing investigation. I thought, yes, you can, because Joe Biden does it all the time. He characterizes the investigation of him as there is no there there. And he 
characterizes the investigation of Trump as utterly irresponsible, as if he's tried, convicted, and found guilty. So he does all the time. And there's the asymmetry. I just wish they would take that locker in the garage and dump it and spread all of the papers all over the garage. And then the FBI could do what they did in the Trump matter and photograph it. And then it would appear in the Drudge Report or something or the Bulwark with, oh, my gosh, scattered uh, hiding papers found all over the garage floor. Or better yet, if they <laughs> didn't do that, they could at least have those guys with the black SUV and kind of the bulked up body armor with the automatic weapons outside Morlago, outside the garage. Something to at least give some shred of symmetry. Yeah. But Rather than Merrick Garland say we don't we don't treat Democrats any different than Republicans, rich but yes, you do. That's what you were there for. You were there to play an Eric Holder wingman. That's what your job is. Don't insult our intelligence. But there's so many discrepancies. I will say to finish this rant, Sammy, there is one red line. Everybody listening knows what it is. It's a huge dinosaur, elephant, whale in the room. It's a mixed metaphors. We all know what it is. Hunter Biden was in the Biden residence where there were unsecured classified documents that had been moved around. Hunter Biden had access to a garage by which, with photographs of which, we can see how sloppily stored our, the public's classified documents were. If it turns out that the FBI takes fingerprints, right, of all the documents that are classified, and if one fingerprint turns up to be turns out to be Hunter Biden's under any circumstance, just one, or if Miranda Devine and and others who go through the laptop contents find any reference by Hunter Biden, that he has knowledge of some development or somebody that can be traced to those classes, then Joe Biden's done. He will be impeached and he will even be convicted and he will be out of office. That is a red line. And that's the subtext of this whole this whole apprehension on their part. They do not want to talk about it. They don't want to give details. They don't want you to tell you how they got there. I guess they grew legs and walked. Because nobody, there was no human agent that delivered these documents other than Joe Biden, I guess. I don't know who, I don't think Tara Reid took the documents out when he was a senator, as an aide. He drove her off. I don't know who did. You know what I'm saying? So how did they get, get out of his Senate office? How did they get out of the vice president? Who moved them from one place to the other? Where were they before they were lodged in the uh University of Pennsylvania think tank uh, building. Nobody has, they don't want to talk about any of this. And I think part of the problem is they know where it leads. I really do think that Hunter Biden, either either he got, he was conveyed information by his father. And that's one of the reasons his father kept consulting these classified intelligence report, or he had access himself. But we'll find out, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, we sure will. Which brings me to an article I was looking at where I I couldn't resist because it said, "Is Biden a is Biden a viable candidate for 2024?" <laughs> I know I, it was so funny. I had that's to look word because viable, you know, is 
Yeah. We're a. It's out of. I just want to tell you where it came from, though, because it came out of The Guardian, which you said at once was a socialist uh, newspaper by a guy named Robert Reich. Guy and named Robert Reich. That's Clinton's labor secretary. You mean a right. socialist, neo-communist, hardcore, zealot, Robert Reich. Yes. And I, I opened it because I thought this guy's going to say yes. And of course, he did say yes. But he said, for these reasons, right? Has he done a good job so far? Yes. Should he run again? Most certainly. And would somebody be Would we find somebody to run if he doesn't? And all he could say to that was, we didn't know Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton two years before they were elected president. And he said, what does that well, mean? His, I mean, that we should never elect anybody like them, one who was impeached and lied on lied to while he was under oath and the other person was totally incompetent. <laughs> exactly. Well, he said Joe Biden's age might be a bit of a concern. And he and to the question of whether he thought he could beat Trump were Trump, the Republican candidate, he said, well, he's done it once. That's all he had to answer to that. So it was really a bad yes that he said. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you use the word viable. I meant, you know, it's well, we're a lot. You mean you have to be alive. He's not completely alive. So he's not viable <laughs> health wise or cognitive. I suppose uh, they're looking. You know what? I, what what I cannot grasp is they they have these little Phillips where they they talk about the papers and they say things like this. They, the mainstream, whatever we call it, media. They say until this, Biden was coming off a string of successes, or there was a, a substantial record of achievement. What was that? The border. He destroyed it. It doesn't exist. There were five to six million entries. He's destroyed the U.S. border towns. A hundred thousand people died of fentanyl poisoning in the United States. The vast majority sent from China raw product and assembled or manufactured in cartel factories for the sole purpose of killing us. That's what he did. Is Can it I tell inflation? You? Oh, yeah. He says six and a half is is great. Is it gas prices? They're up 20 cents a gallon again. I just filled up last week. It was $5.15 for diesel fuel. It's on its way back up to six six fifty. He what has he done? He he just pat he just borrowed another $1.5 trillion. That's success. We're going to pay $450 billion on the national debt this year in interest alone. The housing market has collapsed. What is the achievement? Would somebody tell me what was so good that gave him his momentum up to 43% approval? I don't understand it. It's like these people live in an alternate universe. Okay, you tell me what Mr. Reich says was an accomplishment or achievement, and then pause for one nanosecond, and I will comment. Okay. All right. So he says that the economy was well done. Okay, stop. What was well done? We're having massive layoffs right now. We have sky-high interest rates compared to the last 40 years. We're, we've had two quarters of negative growth. We're going to have a, we had one where we didn't, but we will have a negative one coming up. And we have record high fuel prices. What, what, okay, go ahead. So that was the economy. The infrastructure is next. 
what did we do? We we have infrastructure, I suppose, in California, but we just let out 12 million acre feet of water because we were told there's nowhere to store it because we never built any infrastructure. Where is the infrastructure? What, what, it's, it's not going to be infrastructure. It's not going to be roads and bridges. Think Pete Buttigieg is going to do that? No, no. He, it's going to be in race and gender and diversity, equity, inclusion, entitlements, you know, earmarks. I mean, look at Pete. What are, if you give Pete a bunch of money, he's, what's he going to do with the Port of L.A.? Are they train robbing in L.A.? Or Southwest Airlines, or the computerized, uh, you know, Federal Aviation Administration. It's all a mess. So go ahead. Okay. He's, in fact, what you just said was his accomplishment, too. He got all of the left wing things he wanted to pass passed in the first two years because the Congress was on his side. But let me tell you his exceptions. So he, he did didn't, say he failed. He, he didn't get all oh, of them. He, did, he got the Inflation uh, Reduction Act. We didn't get Build Back Better. They did stop yeah. that. I liked his exceptions, Victor, and they were the only things he's done badly are Afghanistan and a few documents in his house. <laughs> the only thing he's done badly are Afghanistan, in which he abandoned over two decades worth of blood and treasure. He gave up a $300 million remodeled largest Air Force base in Central Asia. He abandoned a $1 billion embassy. He abandoned somewhere between 40 and $60 billion. And by the way, we're very short of equipment now, thanks to the Ukraine war, but he abandoned that and turn Kabul into an international arms mart for terrorists. And he destroyed U.S. deterrence, which I think uh, Vladimir Putin understood very well, because right after we did that in August, he began to mobilize and we was massing troops by the end of the year on the borders of Ukraine. That's what he did. That was the biggest disaster in foreign policy since the 1975 skedaddle from Vietnam. And then there was the documents where he lied repeatedly and he said that he's always been very serious about it. He's never been very serious. He wasn't. We now know that he wasn't serious as a senator. He was not serious as a vice president. He was not serious as a private citizen. And he was not serious as the president. He was just the opposite. He was unserious. Mm-hmm. And uh He's given a great gift. He's true. One of his great accomplishments is he is forging a mechanism for the backroom Democrats to have a way to get rid of him. And that's why when you look at those press conferences just now, just a little bit, they're starting to have some semblance, some of a press conference. These people actually came out of their zombie like states and are asking real questions, maybe 20 percent of them. He did do that. And the only reason that they're doing that is there's a sizable number that see him as toxic and they think he will destroy uh, the Republican, uh, the Democratic Senate. And he will. And he will not win and he won't. And they want to get rid of him. And this is a way to get rid of him. 
probably is true. Well, let's go ahead then and turn to the war in Ukraine. And recently we've been hearing about arguments or resistance on the part of the Germans, for example, to send Leopard 2 tanks in and, and saying they won't do it until the U.S. sends its Abrams tank in. Um, we've seen lots of arms um, given to the the Ukrainians and other things like striker armed personnel carriers and Bradley fighting vehicles. And then we, of course, have all of the senators, I think, that are um, senators and representatives that are calling out, like Josh Hawley, calling out the billions being given of taxpayer money to this war. Um, J.D. Vance asking for an audit of the $100 billion that's already been in. So we've got a lot of concern about the money and the material that's going all to this war. And I was wondering... Well, it's very ironic because the left under Obama cut in real dollars the defense budget and Trump tried to increase it. And Biden has ossified it again. Now, keep that in mind because at the same time they did that, they went full hog into Ukraine, and that is, it's over a hundred billion now. So, the result of that is on this. This is the first conventional war we've really seen um, since Vietnam, and that wasn't quite a conventional war like this. There is no jungle here. It just it's a luce libre. It's just go to it, and it's consuming weapons at a fanatical. It's just fanatic what they're doing. It's crazy, and we don't have them. Because we didn't invest in them. So you hear that these hundred and I think we've given them, what, a million shells, 155 millimeter shells, the mainstay of medium artillery. And we're now taking them out of Israel, 300,000. Why, why were they there? They were there for a reason. They were there in case there's a Middle East blow up and we can't get military support to Israel in time. Now we're depleting that entire trove for Ukraine. And there's been a series of studies this week out of think tanks in Washington that suggests that we it'll take five to six years to rebuild the stash of javelins that we had before this war. And we're on every type of munitions um, and weapon systems. We are depleted. We were before. So what I'm getting at is if China wants to watch and wait, and this goes on for another six months, and then it decides to go into Taiwan, we won't have the wherewithal to stop them, even if we wanted to. And so I, I don't quite get the idea that the left is just clamoring, give us those shells, give us those javelins, we need Bradleys, we need this. How dare you not get, and then they don't want to pay for them in peacetime for our use. It's almost as if like they've discovered there's a military budget or there's shell. There's such things as shells. Wow. We have tanks. Give them to Ukraine. Or it's almost as if they don't want us to have them. We can yeah. be the arsenal for democracy just so we don't have them ourselves. But it's very reckless what they're doing. And yeah, no one's sure talking is. about it because it's it's sort of Zelensky end of conversation. Anytime you want to talk to anybody about it. Zelensky end of conversation as if he's Lincoln or somebody. And there's a lot of issues there that have been, it's sort of like the COVID, the left does this with these hot button issues. You couldn't, 
you know, for much of 2020, you couldn't question the wisdom or the efficacy, or to use that word, the viability of the lockdowns and quarantines. To do that was ostracism. Look what happened to Scott Atlas. And the same thing as Ukraine. You can't question our strategy or policy or anything. And so, you know, it's it's that's an issue that uh, the Europeans are looking at this and they're thinking, hmm, the United States has been giving a hundred billion. They're going to probably end up having to give three or four hundred at some point. They're going to they're going to into a recession. Their borders wide open. They have an election coming up in two years. I don't think they're going to continue to do this. And therefore, why would we want to be out by giving our top model leopard tanks and only to have the Russians get angry at us and cut permanently off our natural gas? So they're not going to do anything unless we show that we're going to ship them what? Abrams tanks? Yeah. And that's going to be very difficult. Those are gas turbine, I think, engines. They they really gulp gas. I think they're much better than the Leopard. The Leopard is supposed to be the best tank in the world, but it's, you know, it's not the latest model Abrams is much better in many ways. Yeah. I think they have the same German manufactured 150 millimeter gun, but other than that, um, How much are they? That's my no, question. They're two as a or three citizen. million dollars each. More. Oh, and that's what they originally cost. I bet they're up to four or five million. They yeah. have everything on them. I mean, the, the Americans are promiscuous in their use of, you know, depleted uranium armor and shell. They don't do that over in Europe. They don't have any of that. And it's, it's to our advantage, at least on the battlefield it is. But uh, he wants what? I think he wants F-16s. He wants Abrams tanks. Uh, Zelensky might as well just say, I want everything you have. Just give me everything you have. I want all your shells. I want all your drones. I want all your patriots. I want everything. And, you know, South Korea is not telling us. You know what's going to happen with this? I'll tell you what's going to happen. We are going to be so indebted to Ukraine and we're going to exhaust our depots and it's going to go on and on. And meanwhile, if you look at what Iran is saying, and South Korea is saying, and what China is saying, uh, Taiwan, they're all saying, we're afraid of the Chinese, we're afraid of the Iranians, we're afraid of the North Koreans. That's all of our best allies, Australia, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan. And we're not able to, I don't think we're going to be able to protect them. And you know what's going to happen? If Iran goes nuclear, they're all going to go nuclear. They're going to just say, you know what? South Korea is already talking about. It. They're just saying, you know what? I don't believe the United States and its current fiscal and material condition and its political turmoil is committed to putting us under the nuclear umbrella. And when they exhaust their conventional forces and their ability to help us and extremists, they're not going to come. And so we're not going to sit here with a sort of Damocles over our head if you're in Seoul or Tokyo. So they will go nuclear. And that's I don't think the Biden people understood that the reason that these countries did not go nuclear is the United States had such overwhelming economic and military strength and such superior weaponry and such stocks and inventories of, of lethal weapons that that they they thought they were in a great position.
And we were yeah. so ready to assist them in, in their hour of need. I don't think any of that exists exist anymore. It's for Ukraine, maybe, but just we have enemies that don't like us and they don't like our allies and they could very easily simultaneously stir up trouble along the DMZ or in the South China Sea and we wouldn't be able to respond or in Israel. So somebody yeah. said, I heard someone speaking, well, these are just 300,000 shells that are in Israel. Why were they there then if they're not important? They were there for a reason. And it's weird. I understand it's tragic what's happening in Ukraine. They're killing innocent people. Putin's a thug. The Russians are in the wrong. But this idea that that this is the moment moment of our entire lives, this former Russia, part of the Russian Federation, or I should say the Soviet Union, with historic ties to Russia, there had to be some type of negotiations that would have would have preserved the autonomy of Ukraine without provoking Russia. In other words, Russia could look at this country and say it's got enormous potential if it it modernizes, it will help us, but it will not be part of the EU or NATO. But that wasn't to be. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and then come back and talk a little bit about uh, professors quitting the university for because of woke. We'll be right back. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor can be found on his website at victorhanson.com. The name of the website is The Blade of Perseus, and you can join for a $5 a month um, subscription, or you can get a $50 a month subscription. So please come join us at The Blade of Perseus. Um, also, there is a, for people in the Fresno area, there is a talk on February 6th at the Clovis Community College by Daniel D. Martino. He is a Venezuelan who is getting a PhD at Columbia University, and he'll be talking on socialism as he experienced it in Venezuela. And it's put on by the American Young Americans for Freedom chapter at the Clovis Community College. And it's worth supporting these young students. They do have as well a case against the administration for um, stopping their free speech, which, of course, the National Young American 
um, Young Americans for Freedom Foundation is aiding them with, but also FIRE, Victor. And I heard, heard that you are on the board of FIRE. You were talking on another show or you're on, you're somehow attached with the FIRE. I like FIRE. I support FIRE, but oh, okay. FIRE um, among the uh, American Freedom Alliance have both been very critical of Governor DeSantis because he has decided to go after um, the mandatory indoctrination, the black it was called black queer theory, and these K through twelve grades mm-hmm. where students are being indoctrinated, and fire and the uh, AFA have decided this is a free speech. Uh, issue and to show that they're not conservative or liberal, they have come down against the governor. Oh, wow. But what I'm arguing is, I was arguing on another show that that is not free speech of violations to say, you know, you can't go into the schools and get a captive audience and indoctrinate people and say, you know, this is the black queer experience and this is going to be part of it. Just it's it's politically loaded. Any more than you could go in there and say, you know, the whole history of the United States is the anti-abortion movement. That was very key to it. And we're going to drill that into you. America was founded on anti-abortion. You understand that? Or if you brought in something else, it would be very controversial. And that would be sort of the gasoline engine and carbon emissions made this country. That happens to be true. But if you just kept saying that and indoctrinating students for the contemporary political advantages of people on the right, they wouldn't, they go crazy. So I was very disappointed in those two organizations that sort of criticized the governor because I think Mm. what he's doing is wonderful. Yeah. Well, in addition, we have on Powerline another University of Alabama professor who is quitting and his um, reasons are the push for, quote, equity in sciences has changed the profession. He says that, quote, the rise of illiberalism in the name of DEI, that's diversity, equity and inclusion, is the antithesis of the principles of the universe that the university was founded on. And he said something interesting because he was a, I think, a geology professor. He said that the false climate um, um, emergency, the false climate emergency narrative um, can't be addressed openly and that his colleagues are seem, as he put it, afraid to say anything about it being false, but behind, but they will say to him privately that they think the climate emergency is a, uh, you know, there's problems with the whole whole science behind that, but they're what he's saying is, that. I, yeah. he, he's kind of well known. I think his name was Wilicki or something. Wilicki, I've, yeah. I've read something about him. And it's not quite true that his colleagues, because there is a climatologist there at University of, I think it's at Huntsville, if that's the the campus, John Christie, and he's written, he's outspoken, and he's kind of made a name for the University of Alabama, and so is Mm -hmm. Wilicki. So there are, it's kind of known, it's got the same brand that Stanford University does in immunology. In other words, 
everybody in the Stanford Medical School went after Scott Atlas almost and Sinala, and they went after Michael Levet, and they went after Jay Bachari, and they went after John Yanides, all because they endorsed the Swedish model, or they said that the vaccinations would not be permanently viable. They would be more like flu shots at best. And they are all proven right. But the point I'm making is you would think that Stanford University would have capitalized on four brilliant uh, immunologists, public health. They were all in different fields, immunology, public health, uh, biology, et cetera. And they would have used that and said, look, Stanford is a is an arena of free speech. It's give and take and yang and yang. We have everything here. The only thing that we demand is excellence. Instead, they didn't. They destroyed that asset. That asset. They really did. And they went after those four people. And they were proven right. Now they look stupid. But my point is that it's very important for a university to encourage excellence and not indo- indoctrination. And you know what happens is the more Stanford went after those four, the more their stature rose as the empirical data from the epidemic uh, confirmed their prognoses. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to get a Republican president in in 2024, and they're going to look around and they're going to say, who are the top people in public health policy as it relates to epidemics and COVID and immunology that were right in this hour of need. Oh my God, they're John Yanides. They're Jay Bacharya. They're Scott Atlas. They're Michael Levette. They're all from Stanford. And Stanford's a great university. So you know what? Any, let's see now. One of you will be CDC. One will be NIH. One will be FDA. One will be National Institute of Allergies, Infectious Disease. That's what I bet will happen because they're the best known. Yeah. And yet they don't claim them. That, I don't understand that. And the same thing was about uh, University of Alabama. They had a couple of people there who were at the forefront of the climate debate, and they weren't crazy. They were using empirical data going back to the 19th century with a caveat that, say, in California, and John Christie was very good about that. He's, you know, we don't have a lot of records. This, the state wasn't really keeping records till about 1855, 1860. The planet is very old and California is very young. So to postulate these massive climate change due to the emission of carbon after the Industrial Revolution started is is very bogus. But they were never saying that the planet wasn't heating up. They were saying the following, that throughout the millennia, the planet goes through cycles where it has been colder than it is now, and it has been hotter. And these cycles can go on for hundreds of years. They can go on for 20 years. But they're but they're not necessarily affected by carbon emissions. And to the degree that they are since the Industrial Revolution, it is not at all clear that those emissions have resulted in radical temperature hikes, maybe a one degree Fahrenheit or two degree Fahrenheit over 50 or 100 years. And it's not all degree, all, it's not all agreed on that you can stop it with viable means. That is, realistically, when you have China and India that are 40% of the world's population or the greatest polluters, 
And so that's what they were saying. But that that's like saying to these people, you know, that if you were uh, a devout Christian, you would say you would deny you would deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. So in their way of thinking, that's their Christ like figure. And they would say, how dare you? That's blasphemy. And they've gone after them. And this yeah. professor decided, you know what? Life's too short. It's too yeah. short. That's what happens said- to people, by the way, when they leave academia. I, you know, I retired from teaching at 49 as 21 years a professor. And then I went to an academic institution, but not as a professor. It's a research institute. But when you talk to people who do, they everybody thinks you're crazy or they, they were crazy. But you talk to them, they feel like they're liberated, like they're normal again. Because it's such yeah. a hot house, abnormal existence in academia. Of people who do stupid things, as you're saying. But you know what? I don't. You said, "Oh, they they're going to look stupid now, or they've done something stupid with Scott and um, Bhattacharya and Ioannidis." But I don't. I don't think it's stupid enough because I don't think they're going to stop, or the stupid are going to just double down on more stupid. I just no, they haven't know what apologized. They never apologized to any of them. The the ninety five or whatever it was Stanford Medical School faculty who said that Scott was a public menace or a danger, or the people who went after Bacharya or Yanidis. Mm-hmm. And I don't I, no, I don't think so, but there is an irony there, isn't there? That their opposition to them and their shrillness and their attacks were welcomed by the left and they gave it so much play, thinking they were going to destroy these men that they became iconic. And then as the pandemic evolved and as the virus mutated and as the series of vaccinations and boosters didn't pan out as advertised and as the once demonic Sweden started to be re-examined with no greater morbidity than many European countries, but with much greater... Uh, economic dynamism and less social cultural damage, people started to change. These people, a lot of us agreed with these guys in the beginning, but nevertheless, my point is this, that they've been confirmed, they've been shown to be correct by the data, and their opponents have been discredited. And they're going to, if you're going to be a Republican administration and you're not just ideologically blind like the left is, then you're going to want people who have a proven record. And who's the most prominent? It's these these people from Stanford. So and the way that they the left has set up this bureaucracy, and I'm not saying they did it alone, but they have control of fifty hundred billion dollars in yeah. grants, more. So wouldn't it be ironic that these guys would have control and would reorganize the situation, the whole medical bureaucracy into a much more fair, open and transparent process where they were adjudicating people by the merits and not whether they were loyal to Dr. Fauci or Collins or had ties with Echo Health or were working with big pharma, whatever they do. So I think it's going to boomerang. I really do. I think that. One day in our lifetime, we're going to see one of those three or four as the head of the CDC or the NIH or the FDA. And they will, I think, be very different than who's there now. And the people who the people who thought they were first and these people were last, these people will be first and they will be last. They thought they were the alpha. They're going to be the omega. 
Yeah, I hope you're right. And just I have a smaller story that some emails um, have been uh, requested in a court case disclosure. And so they've been given over from the NIH and they show revealed that Fauci did have people telling him that this virus might have been engineered in a lab. And that didn't surprise me, probably not you. But what I thought was interesting that Fauci was writing that he was worried um, about damaging science in general and in China in particular. And that was an interesting disclosure of those uh, emails. Fauci used the word science the way that people in government use the word national security or executive privilege. Whenever there's something embarrassing or damning or self-incriminating, some person in the White House of either party will say, we can't comment. That's a matter of national security. Or they'll, you know what I mean? They'll say, we have executive privilege. So he, whenever he's cornered, he just says the science. The science shows it. I can't, you know, it's not me. It's the science. Or if he's in a moment of... Uh, self-revelation. He says, I am the science. You know, the state is me. Yeah. He's Louis the Fourteenth. he thinks. But the point I'm making is that uh, they don't want the truth to come out. He should want all of the emails because he knows what he did. As soon as that virus was discovered and it, and it was associated with that lab and it broke out and the Chinese were suppressing, a little light went off in Fauci's head. I said, oh, my God, Collins and I to evade U.S. prohibitions on the use of gain-of-function viral engineering allowed money from us to go to our old buddy Peter Dasik at Echo Health. He rerouted it to that crazy bat lady at the Wuhan level four and I am afraid that this thing could be connected to what we did. And theoretically, we could be partial what, parents of this thing, and that would be the end of us. So we've got to suppress, suppress, and make fun and ridicule and demonize anybody who would dare follow that train of thought. And that's what they did. Yeah. And it surprises me that he was worried about affecting science or impacting science badly when he's the one that actually did impact science badly by he all did. his lies. He did. You know? <laughs> and so, everybody, ironic. I mean, there were that was a bipartisan um, consensus that gain of function research in terms of coronaviruses, especially whatever benefits um what might accrue from them was not worth the cost or the risk of the cost. It was too too much of a gamble. That's why it was outlawed. And again, Anthony Fauci is sort of like, I mean, this whole thing is very similar mutatis mutandis with the necessary changes being made to the laptop and the information on the laptop, but more importantly, its relationship to these documents. And yeah. everybody knows that our health bureaucratic establishment is trying to hide something and was the whole time. And everybody knows there was a red line, an explosive point. And if at any point there is conclusive, demonstrable evidence that Anthony Fauci and his colleagues in the U.S. government routed money. And this is what Rand Paul got at. And he, he grilled him on this. And that money unambiguously helped create the 
SARS virus and gain-of-function viruses, and that led to this pandemic, then they're all through. They can say that they're retiring, they've got great pensions, they're beloved, they've got bobble dolls or whatever they are. He's got a, a whole office with pictures of himself and press. He's done. And the same thing, as I said earlier, is true about the classified documents or garage gate as it's been known. You you find one item of demonstrable, unassailable proof that Hunter Biden looked at, examined, used, whatever, classified information, which his father brought out unlawfully from a secure location as a senator, as a vice president, as a and kept as a private citizen. And the Biden family, that consortium is all through yeah. because that's nobody can. I, I say that because nobody can defend it. There will be people who will want to defend Fauci and all they're going to have to say is so then you think it was OK to fund research that led to the creation of the SARS virus. Is that what you're saying? Or people on the left, people will say to them. So you think it's OK that Hunter Biden who, with his record of recklessness, was examining papers that had classification top secret warnings on them. And he, at the same time, was leveraging foreign governments uh, for money because of the status of his father as the future president. Okay, that's what you want to defend? They won't defend that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'll be good. We'll see. I'm not trying to prejudge it. I don't know if that's true. I'm just throwing it out there because something has to. We know why Fauci is all over the place and worried and gets angry and screams and yells at people now and loses his temper because he knows he's got culpability. We just don't know have the exact proof in its fullness yet. But there's something weird about these documents. And the one question that the people are not asking is, what was the general nature of the documents? Why did Joe Biden take them out? Why were they moved around? Who was in charge to allow such sloppy storage? And were they used for any Biden purpose? And you put it all together and you get this image of somebody, you know, here's a document. I'm in the library today. I'm on. I'm going to go. It's in the dining room. It's in the garage. Oh, there's go get me that one from the pen. When did we move it? That kind of attitude. Yeah. yeah, that's that's not good. No, that sure isn't. And sure seems uh, very sloppy on his part. So we'll see what happens. Pro- they may blame the archivist for letting the materials well, go. They're gonna, there, they've so. already brained that poor woman. Was her name Chung? That, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. She was uh, known to Hunter Biden and he recommended that she be the person that is in charge of uh, Biden's uh, affairs in the sense of storage and things like that. Oh, and they're, wow. already, they're already leaking out of the White House that she may be culpable. Yeah, they got to wow. find somebody. Yeah, exactly. They may have their fall guy. So, well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and come back and talk about the Minneapolis City Council and a vacancy tax they're contemplating. And then also students tyrannizing over faculty at institutions. We'll be right back. (music) 
we're back at the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Welcome. Victor, a very strange thing. Minneapolis's downtown was destroyed and the buildings are <laughs> largely vacant and they're trying to figure out ways to make money. So they're thinking of taxing people for having vacant buildings. I was wondering it's your thoughts funny. on that. that. That's come up in San Francisco, too, I think. It's so our listeners should have patience with me here because they're not going to believe it, but so you're in charge of the government of the city of Minneapolis, or to a lesser degree, maybe the state's influence governor, and you defund a large part of the police budget, and you don't arrest, try, convict, incarcerate violent criminals. You have a soft spot or a blind spot for violent protests where people who loot, burn, and arson are not punished. You superimpose those short-term disasters on the longer-term catastrophes that Minneapolis is a blue city in the blue state of Minneapolis, of Minnesota, that's highly regulated, highly taxed. And you put it all together and people do not want to start businesses. They can't count on security. They can't count on homeless people not being in front of their stores. So they're they're not renting space and the landlords don't have any income. So they're not they're just letting the buildings stay vacant. Nobody wants to rent from them at any price. And so given that it's not viable, keep using that word viable today. They come and think you can legislate reality. Okay, we drove everybody out. We impoverished it. We ruined the, the downtown by our policies. Now we're going to make another law and says that if you react to all the things that we did to ruin you by not having a renter, we're going to force you to. We're going to tax you. We're going to punish you. I guess the only solution would be, hmm, they've destroyed my building. It has no market value. Now they're going to make me pay for the no market value. I'll just open it up and invite Antifa and BLM to open an office in it or maybe <laughs> make it a homeless shelter. And then at least I won't have to pay a fine for having it open. And I guess what would they say then? They would say, well, it's crowded, but it's viable. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. busy. Crazy. These people, I think a lot of it is that to tell you the truth, it's what very scary because this is something that is that goes back to classical literature, but it's it's in Tocqueville, it's in a lot of uh, Hobbes, it's in Adam Smith. But when you have a large number of people who are not independent, autonomous, self-reliant, in other words, they get a check in the mail and they work for a bureaucracy or an organization or a large conglomerate or consortium, whatever term we use, then they lose touch with reality. So they just think they can legislate everything and tell people what to do because the check always comes in the mail for them. Mm -hmm. And so they don't understand that we're $31 trillion in, in debt. They don't worry about that. They just, they're, they work at the DMV. They work at the, equal opportunity office they work at city council they work in the epa whatever it is but they they have that view when you get when you get the majority the vast majority um because you can make an argument that in some ways two out of every 
three people are connected with government employment, then they lose all, they lose all reality. They have no sense of reality. So they really do believe they can tax somebody who's losing money because of their policies and punish them because they don't put renters in that don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, that's just crazy. It's like well, the, Gavin oh, Newsom outlawing natural gas, you know, uh, heating in California, I guess, in five years, or that's saying crazy. you can't buy a truck in five years, or it's just nutty. It, yeah. it just, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a bourbon king. I say we're going to do this, and this is going to be a fiat, and we're, and only a person who's never had to worry about his money coming from his long haul trucking or his crop of Santa Rosa plums or his uh, steel factory or his job not getting laid off as he, you know, creates uh, airbags in a factory. Only people who don't do all that would come up with these loony ideas. Yeah. Put them in the real world. And I think they would be quickly abused of these fantasies. Well, Victor, we have a last topic today, and that is the creation of a student body that's been fed on critical race theory and has been nursing its de, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion grievances. And so, so indoctrinated that Christopher Rufo in City Journal writes this, and adults means the teachers and the administration, and members are the students he's referring to. And here's what he says. The adults have effectively ceded authority to the most aggressive, intolerant, and ideological members of the community who wield the language of, quote, trauma and, quote, diversity in pursuit of a suffocating left-wing orthodoxy, which they use to justify a perpetual campaign to silence and exclude anyone on the wrong end of on the wrong political end of the intersectional hierarchy. <laughs> He's right. The students are becoming very tyrannical in all of the schooling that they're getting from these the slept wing. Well, <laughs> they they keep pushing this, and then you get a governor who's courageous and competent and that's Ron DeSantis. So he puts on that College of Florida. I guess it's his regents. Did you see the names that he put on there? Charles Kessler, Mark Bowerland, yeah. Matthew Spaulding, Christopher Rufo that you just quoted. I mean, these are all some of the best and most accomplished conservative academics and intellectuals in the United States. So, I mean, they they earn those people because those guys know what they're doing and they're going to go in there and they're going to stop it. And um, it, it's it's just amazing that these universities think that they continue. There's no laws of physics, in other words. And you and I talk about this a lot, Sammy. And, and you know what? I want to interject here that I did read a lot of letters. And these were not just the regular um, comments on the podcast or electronic messaging to me, but they were written out. So when I go to my office each week, I've got a wonderful uh, assistant, Andre, and he gives me mail. But I and I also, you know, when if I'm there before it's passed on to him to, to examine and look at, I read it. My, you know, I always read it. But my gosh, you should see the reaction. A lot of people wrote us, and they said, "How did you know that we don't trust Stanford degrees, or how do you know we don't?" 
trust BAs in electrical engineering? Or how do you know, did you know that we offer tests? And the, the, the topic and the theme was the same all the way the country. It was, we don't trust universities anymore. And some of them were long letters, some were short, but here was what I'm getting at. Here was the common theme, the common theme. One guy really wrote and explained it. And also in this case, a guy wrote me an email, but it was this, why wouldn't it not be this way? If you destroy meritocracy on the front end of admissions, and you think you're going to re-engineer the world by letting people in without meeting your own criteria that you used to profess was absolutely necessary. I mean, nobody put a gun to Harvard and Yale and said, you have to offer, you have to require an SAT test, right? Or a GPA. So they didn't do that. They did it. And they did it because they wanted to supposedly the best students in the country. Okay. So if you destroy that, blow it up, atomize it, then what do you do when the, the students do not meet your former requirements? Then the process starts to kick in, Sammy. Then the courses are watered down. And the people who were admitted meritocratically, there's still some, they just goof off. They say, hey, I can take this introduction to computer science and I can, you know, I'll, I'll play Tetris while they're lecturing. This is a joke. And they don't, they're not challenged. And then the grading is watered down. The amount of work is watered down. And ultimately, the degree has to be watered down. It means nothing. And the employer is in a existential fight with India and China and Vietnam and Singapore and all these foreign countries that are developing tech centers and industries, and they want to keep ahead of them. And unfortunately for them, those universities that were way, way behind us are catching up in China, in India, because they don't do this. They used to do it with Mao. They used to have ideological uh, constraints, but they allow people in the sciences, at least, uh, to be free of communist indoctrination. And they can be in a weird way. They can be more meritocratic than ours, that their their indoctrination is suspended in matters of national import and the sciences, and ours isn't. So now all the things we've talked about this last year about the political correctness, the wokeness, the diversity equity, that has now jumped over a hurdle like the firewall, the last bastion, the rampart, which was always built around the STEM courses, the engineering, the science, the mathematics. And it's jumped over and it's in them now. And once it gets to them, that's the heart. That's the brain of the of the country. And then things don't work. And that's happening now. And so yeah. these uh, what he's writing about is you destroy meritocracy. And there's no reason why when we have people coming from Venezuela, we have people coming from Colombia. We have people coming from India. We have people coming in droves from Mexico. Now, why are they coming? Is it because they love the Declaration of Independence? Is it because they love the memory of Abraham Lincoln? Is it because they love Barack Obama or Donald Trump? Is it because they're racist and they just love so-called 65, 8% white people? 
Is that what it is? No, it's none of that. It's based on one point that the United States, for a variety of reasons, was the most meritocratic, and they see that as a quality of opportunity, meaning that who your father was, what color of your skin is, how much money you have in the bank, how you speak a particular, that doesn't matter. You can make it if you work hard and you're meritocratic, and then things start to work. There's not trash by the sides of the road. The sewage doesn't overflow into the streets when it rains. People in the hospital don't try to reuse a disposable needle. There's rules, there's regulations that makes life good, and they want a part of it. But you destroy meritocracy, and you then you become just like them. I was thinking the other day that I thought, well, Maybe Biden is so worried that he might not get elected because he destroyed the border that he wants to, when, when Mayorkas and he say the border is going to be secure, maybe they think they're going to so destroy meritocracy that nobody would want to come here. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. if you were in Oaxaca, you said, why should I go up there? The medicine just as good here. The water makes you sick up there just as much as it does here. You know, there's people living out in rural California with porta potties just like here. So what's the purpose? And I think that's really a scary thought when you destroy meritocracy. Yeah. And remember what meritocracy was. It was the enemy of tribalism. It always was. It was the priest. It was the ancient divide between pre-civilizational life and civilizational life. The moment you were not allowed to use your superficial appearance or your shared DNA for your advantage of your group, but you had to be meritocratic. You had to pick the best person uh, to serve on a water board or to be a general. Then suddenly things started happening. Good thing. But yeah. we're, we're hell-bent and going backward through history, back to our pre-civilizational tribal pedigree. It's really scary how these so-called liberal utopians want to make us pre-civilizational, pre-cultural. And the best way to do it is to destroy meritocracy and just pick people on their tribal affiliations and then go through the, uh, the motions as if it's still a university. Just because it says Stanford or Yale or Princeton when you drive up to it, or it has its logo or its particular color or its stamp, or it's, it doesn't mean anything. All that means anything is the quality of education that its students receive and the competency and the excellence that they exhibit as they leave that university and for the rest of their life. You destroy that, and you have nothing. There's nothing left. Yeah. It just becomes a joke. And that's what they're doing. But they're not just doing it haphazardly. They're doing it systematically at, at rapid speed, almost as like lemmings going over the cliff. And, yeah. and you know what's sad about it? When you look at the people, and I'm not going to mention names because I know the people at Stanford that are doing it, but when you look at them, it was all, they destroyed the university for a very cheap price. It was three more years as a dean, four more years as a president, five more years as a provost. That was, in other words, they would say or do anything or cave or appease just so they could, they could enjoy their perks for a little bit longer. But it, it was Samson-like. They just pulled the house on top of them. And I, I'm, I don't see how they're going to get out of it. I don't. It would be think about Sammy as we leave and we'll stop. 
what would it entail to stop the woke stuff in the university? How could you do it? That's like saying, how could you be in Russia in 1965 and say, we're going to get rid of the commissars and the military or 1943? How would you do it? Well, we're going to, we're going to get rid of the nomenclature. I don't know how you do it. I don't. Well, now that you're saying it that way, you will need an, an election to bring in a whole new leadership and then they can start. I know that what you're trying to suggest is it's so embedded in those universities that even if you have a Republican president and Congress, it's it's not going to change anything at the level of the university. Well, that's um, a famous might be right. phrase in like, Latin, you know, attributed, I think, to Salas, the medicine is, and Livy, Livy talked about it, both of them, I think. You you can't do anything when the medicine is deemed worse than the disease. So what this this moderate little effort that DeSantis is trying to do, they're going hysterical about it. Mm, I but know. that is just like a tiptoe of what needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, you need to go in there and reestablish uh, objective criteria for retention, promotion, and tenure. And you need to have an admissions policy that's absolutely meritocratic. And that means legacies as well as uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. And then you need to have absolute free speech and inquiry, and you have to have complete due process and the Bill of Rights about every issue that comes up about, you know, legality on campus. And you you really have to do that. And you have to take that. I would you'd have to take the entire curriculum, anything with the dash studies, get rid of it. Yeah. You know, black studies, gay get... studies, environmental studies, studies. There, the university was wonderful where there was no studies. The studies was incorporated in philosophy and history and biology and math. They didn't need these little subgroups. The subgroups were each week's syllabus. You know what I mean? Yeah. And exactly. so it would be a monumental task. And the person who would do it, I mean, when Larry Summers was kind of sloppy in the way he did it, but he just timidly, timidly suggested that maybe there were cultural factors that promoted more male mathematicians than female or for for various reasons. And then he, to save his job, he gave the women's studies, what, $50 million? It still wasn't enough. They destroyed him. After yeah. that, he was destroyed. I mean, in every aspect of his professional life. And so yeah, it's, it's hard to know who wants to. I mean, there were people that were presidents that, I, I don't know, unless you took Hillsdale College and some billionaire that's listening, you said to yourself, I want a legacy that saved America. Here's $5 billion. And you go to President Larry Arn and say, please, please, I want a billion dollars for a campus in California. I want a billion dollars for a start in, you know, Mississippi. I want a billion dollars in Washington, D.C. I want a billion dollars in Minneapolis and just Xerox Hillsdale. And maybe that would work. But yeah. That's a dream, though, Victor. <laughs> That's a lot Don't of money. Give, I would say, you know, if you're going to give money, get, again, don't be flattered by these universities. Don't say, you know, or and the cost of getting your child in, if that's how you look at an education, if you're very wealthy, has really gone up because there's not that many room when you have a diversity, equity, inclusion, huge repertory 
percentage, then they're charging you with a wink and a nod a lot more money to get your child into a university that's a lot more mediocre than it was. So if you're going to, if you really think that your own BA from Harvard or Princeton or Duke or wherever is you want to enhance it by giving money, I wouldn't do it. It's over with. And if you were going to give money, I would have such strict, restrict, such strict restrictions on it if it if it was all possible how it could be spent and even then they would avoid and circumvent your instructions you'd be much better off to give it to st thomas aquinas or hillsdale college yeah all right victor well we are at the end of our time thank you so much for everything today it was a wonderful discussion i enjoyed it myself i'm sure your listeners did and thanks to the listeners as well we got through it. We had some barking dogs and a couple of electronic problems, but we got through it. And everybody, <laughs> thank you. We really appreciate your listening. Yeah. And I, I try to read everything that comes in one way or the other, whether on the website or Andre gives me the letters or I look at them myself or I look at my email. They're very helpful. Yeah, they are all very helpful. Thank you so much. And all the comments on the articles, too. We really appreciate I, I that. Really at the appreciate it. There's a lot more of us out there, you guys, and we think. We think <laughs> that we're in the minority. I think we're in the majority. I really do. And yeah. I think they're going to. I misspoke before the midterm election when I was optimistic that, that I didn't think the Republicans would blow it like they did in the Senate. But I'm getting optimistic again that we're the majority. All right. Well, thank you, Victor. Okay, thank you, everybody. All right, this is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson, and we're signing off.